Let us pray for the preached word. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would send your spirit to be among us, to open our ears and our hearts, to receive the word that is about to be preached. We pray that you would be with our pastor, that he would speak the word boldly in all faithfulness, that he would trust that you have promised that there is no such thing as fruitless preaching. It's in your name I pray. Amen. You may be seated and you'll take your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. If you've been with us the last several weeks, uh, you, you, you already know this, but to our visitors, what we've been working through is uh, somewhat of a topical series. Uh, we had the occasion, the blessing of being able to call and install and ordain a new deacon. And that precipitated uh, a brief study on the duties and qualifications of deacons. And then that led to a study on the duty and qualifications of pastors, elders, overseers, all those terms being synonymous. And now I'll begin today, uh, kind of adding part of this, adding on to this series is the duty and qualifications of church members. So I want to look today at the, the qualifications for church membership. Sometimes we don't really think about qualifications for church membership. We've, we've been considering from the scriptures that there are explicit qualifications, and, it's, and they're even called qualifications, for church officers. But we live in an age that just assumes everyone gets a trophy, that everyone participates, that just by showing up, you're counted among the number. But we don't find that idea in the scriptures. So as we look today briefly at the qualifications and duties of church members, we need, to, we need to train ourselves to think this way, that there are, in fact, qualifications for church membership. And then, as we think about those, we'll, we'll consider so over the next few weeks some of the duties of membership that, that flow from those qualifications. But our, our task today is the qualifications for church membership. I'm going to be looking primarily at... Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, with an emphasis on verses 8 through 13. But I will tell you ahead of time, I'm going to quote extensively today from our Confession of Faith. If you have a copy, have that, uh, you want to have that ready. If, if not, in the back of your seats nearby, you should be able to find one of the blue hymnals. And in the back of that hymnal is our Confession of Faith. For our visitors, what this is, is this is a historic confession. It's a statement of what we believe. It's 32 chapters, and it, it, is, it is not at all intended to, to overrule or supplant or undermine the authority of God's Word. In fact, we believe it, it, it actually establishes it. But it does give us, the, uh, in, in short form, a summary. And so as we look at two important doctrines that end up being qualifications for church membership, saving faith and repentance. We're going to look for a couple of reasons extensively at our confession. Number one, because it is a summary, it will give us very concise, clear language. But also, historically speaking, these two doctrines have been widely contested. If you've studied history at all, if you've studied the Reformation, you know these were central to the Reformation itself. So rather than trying to plow new ground, reinvent the proverbial wheel... I want to read to you and and cite to you the specific language that was born out of conflict, language that has stood the test of time that will accurately, clearly, and in short order, give you a summary of these very important doctrines, not only so that you can believe rightly, but also that you can use these as really helpful tools in your own family discipleship as you seek to minister the gospel and, and, and explain your faith to those around you, extended family members or co-workers or neighbors or other, other contexts. So we'll look today at those two primary doctrines, faith and repentance. I had originally scheduled to do baptism as well, and I thought this is just too much. It's too much to eat in one sitting. So we'll, we'll look at baptism next week. But open with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13 
This is, this is Paul right here in the middle of a, of a section in his letter where he's writing about, he refers to his kinsmen according to the flesh. Well, he's talking about ethnic Jews, ethnic Israel. And you'll notice Paul has a yearning for them. Paul is not ready to dismiss them, or to set them aside. He actually says in another place that if it were possible, he would even be willing to have himself cut off eternally so that his brothers and sisters could be brought into the kingdom. But let's read together, beginning in chapter 10, verse 1. Notice Paul's heart for his own kinsmen, his own ethnic countrymen. And we'll make some notations, some careful things that he says about the nature of saving faith. This is the Word of God, and hear it as such, really the Word of God. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, and again, this is ethnic Israel. My prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is, excuse me, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim, because... If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Notice, first of all, as we think about qualifications for church membership, if we want to think about it as a doorway. You remember the, the old cartoons where the character would exit quickly and he would create a bunny-sized hole in the wall, or a coyote-sized hole in a wall as he goes through. It's a silly example, but there's a certain shape to that door that's made there. And the shape of the door to church membership must be precisely the same shape as the door into the kingdom of heaven. The entrance into church membership should not be broader or narrower than the entrance into the kingdom of heaven. So the very first qualification we think about for church membership is exactly the same as the qualification for membership into the kingdom of heaven. In Colossians, Paul speaks of being transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's own son. What does that doorway look like? What does that transition point look like from darkness and into light? The first qualification that we find in the scriptures is faith, saving faith. We must believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now notice something important, and I'm not going to, to do a complete exposition of the first, uh, first half of the section that I read, but I want you to notice something in Paul's introductory uh, language here in chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. What is he saying? They are not presently saved. But aren't they Jews? Aren't they religious? Don't they know that God is one? There's only one God, that, they, that there's not multiple gods, so aren't we, can't we say that they're close enough to enter the kingdom? See, Paul is not coming with, at the Jews with a bias against them. He's actually coming with a bias towards them. If he has a bias at all, it says, I would love to see them saved. My heart's desire is that they may be saved, but they're not. My heart's desire that they enter into the kingdom, but they have not done so, many of them. 
He goes on to say, for, here's his reasons, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For, here's another reason, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. See, in in a culture like ours, where we tend towards a universalism, even in Christian circles, we tend to want to make the doorway to heaven so broad that anyone that even says something vaguely theistic is considered a member of the kingdom. But that's not the Bible. In fact, Paul's making such a fine point on this that even those who were ethnic offspring of Abraham, who bore the physical sign of circumcision, who haven't had a zeal in their profession and even activity and even law-keeping towards God, Paul says, they haven't made it through the door. They are not part of the kingdom. Why? Because they've sought to establish their own righteousness rather than a righteousness that depends upon the grace of God revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the thing that we want to note here is Paul is quoting Scripture multiple times in this passage. But you know what he's quoting? The Old Testament Scriptures. Paul's reasoning to them is that from the Old Testament, they ought to recognize their Messiah. They ought to be able to see by faith that Jesus of Nazareth is, in fact, the promised Messiah, that he is the rightful son of David. He is the rightful seed, singular, promised to Abraham, and that he is the true Israel. And it is only by faith in him that the promise of the Jewish religion are actually fulfilled and completed. See, Paul says they do not have knowledge. I mean, they know a lot of things, don't they? Jesus confronted them often with the things that they thought they knew, but they knew incorrectly. And Paul says they don't have a knowledge of God. They have a zeal for him. They talk a lot about God. They even have a lot of religious activity. I mean, Jesus says they they, they tied their mint and cumin and dill, but then missed the greater things of the kingdom because they were seeking to establish their own righteousness rather than the righteousness that comes from faith. Now, what's included in saving faith then? Because Paul says they didn't have a knowledge. And see, we live in a culture that wants to have a feeling, not knowledge. That if you feel something, if you experience something strongly enough, this is the essence of Mormonism, isn't it? If you've studied Mormonism, that's, you, you want to read the text, and if you have a burning in your bosom, that's what confirms that what you feel is true. It's experiential. It's emotional at its core. But Paul says the problem with the Jews is they don't have the right mental understanding. They don't believe the right things. Therefore, they cannot be part, or at least they are not yet part of the kingdom. Jim Renahan makes a comment that's really helpful. He says the reformers, see, the the reformers were dealing with these very things. Not, Not Judaism per se, but Roman Catholicism that had imbibed much of the same sort of legalism of Rome, or of, of, of the Judaizers. And he says, the reformers argue that true faith consists of three parts. Now, bear with me, I'm going to give you some Latin words. You don't have, they're not going to be on the test, you don't have to memorize them, but, but they're concepts that are very helpful. There's three Latin words, notidia, ascensus, and fiducia. Now, the first element, notidia, is knowledge. Now, Paul uses the word knowledge here, doesn't he, in Romans 10. There must be a certain content to your faith. The first element, notidia, is knowledge. There must be an understanding, says Renahan, of the actual content of the gospel and promises of God. See, our saving faith doesn't begin with a feeling. It begins with an objective knowledge about who Christ is, what he has done, and what he has accomplished in the gospel. The second word is ascensus. This is the act by which the intellect acknowledges the truth. So it is not only that we know the content of the gospel, it's not only that we can quote the Bible verse and and read it back to someone and say, I understand, I know that, but it's that we mentally say, this is true. Not only can I rehearse it and, and repeat it, but I believe it. I think this is true. Now, James tells us that even the demons believe and they tremble, but they don't obey it. Then 
the last word, fiducia, is the authentic, personal, and saving appropriation of the teachings of the Word of God understood and accepted as true. So you have to know the content. You have to believe that content is true. And then you have to depend upon that knowledge for the saving of your soul. If you will turn with me to our confession of faith, I want you to see how this has been articulated as this is a a document that is now roughly 350 years old. If you have a Trinity hymnal near you, it's, it's on page 677. It's not hymn number 677, but page number 677 in the very back. This is a chapter called Of Saving Faith. And we have a definition of, of saving faith in the first two chapters. We see the definition and then how this faith is, is worked out. What is this, what is this notidia? What is the knowledge? What is the asensia? What is what is what's or asensus? What is what is has to be believed, and then what needs to be depended upon and trusted in? Paragraph one, and again, this is simply summarizing what the scriptures as a whole teach about the nature of saving faith. The grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought or produced by the ministry of the Word, by which also, and by the administration of baptism in the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means appointed of God, it is this faith, this saving faith, is increased and strengthened. So saving faith begins with a work of the Spirit. It doesn't begin with man. It doesn't begin with us, our activity, our actions, or even our desires. It begins with God moving in us through the person of His Spirit, enabling us to believe the Word proclaimed to us. Then listen to what the content is. What is this knowledge that must be understood in order to say... I am a Christian. Paragraph 2, by this faith, by this saving faith, a Christian believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the Word of God for the authority of God himself. Well, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe all this is true. Can I be a Christian? No. No. Because this is the authority of God. This is God's revelation to man. This is common among Mainline denominations, and, and this is the hallmark of, of Christian liberalism, which is kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? So I, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe his word, or at least not all of it. I want to pick and choose. Well, who's in authority then? The person claiming to understand, the claim, person claiming to believe. So I believe whatsoever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself, and also apprehendeth an excellency therein, in the word of God, above all other writings and all things in the world, as it bears forth the glory of God in his attributes, the excellency of Christ in his nature and offices, and the power and fullness of the Holy Spirit in his workings and operations, and so is enabled to cast his soul upon the truth thus believed." So you see, here's the content of our faith, but also not just, not just content of what we know, but do I believe it as true, and am I willing to cast my soul upon the certainty and the hope contained in the Scriptures describing my Savior and the remedy for my sin? It goes on, and saving faith also acts differently upon that which each particular passage of the Word contains yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at its threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. But the principal acts of saving faith have immediate relation to Christ, accepting, receiving, see that's the notidius and the ascensus, accepting, receiving, and resting upon him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. See, there must be a content to our saving faith. At one point, the Jews came to Jesus and said, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Somebody in your office asks you that. An extended family member asks you that. One of your children asks you, what do we do to do the works of God? 
What would your answer be? You want to remember Jesus' answer? This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is the work of faith, is believing. Believing, not only the content of it, but that it's true and that it's trustworthy. My, I, can, I can bet my entire eternity on it, and it's true. Dear brothers and sisters, every religion that's invented by man seeks to add burdens and seeks to add demands and seeks to add works that no man can actually do. Every religion tells you, here's the way that you yourself climb the holy mountain and reach up to God. And what does Paul say? See, the Jews had this wrong. They said, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? See, he's quoting from their own scriptures and says, this is wrong. You can't ascend to God. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. The truth is there all along. But your own hardened hearts prevent you from seeing it, understanding it, and believing it, and trusting in it. Do you want to know God? Believe in his son, Jesus Christ. Believe what the scriptures say about him. Believe what the scriptures say he has done for sinners. Believe what the scriptures say he's going to accomplish at his return in the fulfillment of all things. Believe that God sent his only son into the world to die in the place of sinners. Believe that God has raised Christ from the dead just as the scriptures foretold. Believe that it was necessary for him to die for your sins. And believe that all of your debt has been paid, that all of your sin canceled, that the certificate of debt that you rightly and justly owe to God has been nailed to the cross and it's been stamped paid in full. And not only that, believe the gospel promise that instead of your sin, your account is not left empty. You have now been credited by the grace of God alone, with the full faith and credit of the Lord Jesus Christ. That all of his active and passive obedience, every jot and tittle of the law that you and I could never keep, he kept perfectly. And his full measure, infinite measure of righteousness is credited, imputed to you by faith. Will you believe that and trust in that? But what about when your faith falters, hypothetically? What about when your faith is weak? What about when you have sinned, even willfully, and now you have this thought, and the enemy comes and accuses you, no Christian would act like that. No Christian would talk to his wife that way. No Christian would talk to her children that way. No Christian would do the kinds of things that you just did, and the enemy comes and accuses you. What do you do then? What do you do? When your faith falters, when your faith feels very weak, at that moment, is your security in Christ in jeopardy? Have you lost hope? Is your standing with God hindered or undone or negated or diminished in some capacity? The answer is absolutely not. Or to use one of Paul's favorite sayings, may it never be. Listen, I hope if you're still in there in chapter 14, in saving faith. Look at the third paragraph. This is worth devotional reading, saints, to be reminded of this. Listen to this. This faith, this saving faith, although it be different in degrees and may be weak or strong. As we sit here in a church this morning, if we were to somehow, if there was some sort of meter or smartwatch that we could put on everyone and Thankfully, there's not. But if we could do that and kind of measure the degree of your faith, you know, 100-point scale and, you know, it's measuring out, you're a 99. I mean, I can move mountains. I, I am just so on fire for the Lord. And then, but then tomorrow morning, when it's a 2 or it's a 20, what do you do? Listen to the words in our confession, again, describing summarizing what our scripture 
what our scriptures teach. This faith, although it be different in degrees, it may be weak or strong, yet it is in the least degree of it different in the kind or nature of it, as is all other saving grace from the faith and common grace of temporary believers. It's a reference to the parable of the sower. There's some where there's immediate fruit and then it just goes away because the cares of the world choke it all out. So even a weak faith is of a completely different kind and sort and nature than a temporary faith. And therefore, though it, your weak faith, may be many times assailed and weakened, yet it gets the victory, growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and the finisher of our faith. Saints, your standing before God does not depend upon the strength or the intensity of your faith. It depends upon the genuineness of it, but not its intensity, not its strength. So on those days when you wake up and that faith is a two or a one or a half of a one, your standing before God has not been diminished one iota. Your standing before a holy, holy God depends not upon you, but upon the finished work of Christ alone. Do you hear that? That's good news, isn't it? But the other side is true. When you're kind of feeling like, I'm a 99 today, saints don't boast. Humble yourselves before the Lord and say, praise God for this gift of faith. It is a gift. And he has blessed me immensely. But tomorrow it might be shaken. My own sin may catch up to me. Someone else may betray me. Just the, the, the ravages of this world may shake and rattle my faith. But true faith always, always, always gets the victory. So the entrance to the kingdom of heaven depends upon that. It doesn't depend upon you. It doesn't depend upon me and the intensity or the strength of our faith. It depends upon Christ and his finished work. And sometimes it's with bloody fingernails. We feel like we're just hanging on. But even in that moment, we're not hanging on to him. He's hanging on to us. It is by virtue of his finished work that we are preserved. Give thanks to God that it is not by the strength of your faith that you were saved but by its authenticity, by the genuine nature of it. Now, so faith is the first qualification for church membership because it is the first qualification to be a Christian. But true faith is always, 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 always accompanied by another evangelical obedience. And by evangelical obedience, I mean another gift given to you, given to me, and that is the grace of repentance. We need to think of faith and repentance like two sides of the same coin. Faith is... Necessary. We must believe the gospel, but we also must show the, the fruit of that faith in repentance. So repentance is the other side of this faith coin. Repentance is also a condition or a qualification for church membership. True faith is always accompanied by repentance. Now, think about this. Think this through. If True saving faith includes a knowledge of God that's embraced both in the mind and in the heart. So I, intellectually, I know it's true. I, I've assented to that. I believe it's true. And I've also trust, put my trust in it. My heart trusts in these things. If that's true, then that also must include a knowledge and a belief and a certain kind of trust that mankind is sinful. And to use the words of Paul, I am the chief of sinners. So, so to, to, it's one thing to know who God is, but I also must know something about myself. You must know something about yourself. That you were born dead in sin and in need of a Savior. It must include a specific knowledge of yourself as sinful and in need of cleansing by God and a need for a change of mind, a change of will, a change of words, a change of actions. In the biblical words, you probably know this, the biblical word for repentance is the Greek word metanoia. And, and we, you may hear that. Here in there, we get our, Greek, our English word metamorphosis from that same word. Well, the most classic example, of course, is the caterpillar. There is, undergoes, spins a cocoon, undergoes a metamorphosis, and comes out, if it's the right kind of caterpillar, to a beautiful butterfly. 
there's a metamorphosis, a complete change. It really is a new creature, new creation when it comes out. And as a result of God's gracious internal work in the heart of a sinner, the repentance described in the Bible is more than just a superficial change. It's more than just a change of aesthetics or outward appearance. It is a wholly new creature. Earlier in Paul's letter, we've been in Romans 10, but if we go back to Romans 2, you don't have to turn there, but just listen to this. In Romans 2, Paul's dealing with this issue. And he has brought two witnesses to bear against all of, all of created man, both the, the created order itself, that the heavens declare the glory of God, that, that the invisible attributes of God are plain to man, and yet some suppress that truth and unrighteousness. And then in chapter 2, he brings a second witness forward. It says, your own conscience testifies that the works of God's law are in fact written on your heart. And when you do things that are pleasing to God, your own conscience bears witness that this is good. It's good to marry and have a family and be faithful in those things. That's written on the heart of man. But the flip side of that is when you sin against your own conscience. When you sin against your own conscience, you are bearing testimony to the fact that God's law, God's perfect standard of righteousness, is written on you and you've rebelled against it. And therefore God is just to condemn you. And when Paul's talking about that, he comes to this passage. In Romans 2, verse 4, he says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? See, God has been gracious to men, even those who are in sin and rebellion against him. God has been gracious. What's the point of that graciousness? It's not leniency like the parent who lets their child get away with anything. It's not that kind of leniency. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent, well, that's the word that's the opposite of repentance, impenitent, heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Notice the contrast. He's contrasting repentance with continuing on in the hardness of your heart. See, there's, there's two choices, and, and only two choices. You can turn from, you can change your mind with respect to the sin in which you are engaged and agree with God on that matter, or you can harden your heart and continue down the road that you're on. That's the contrast that Paul sets up. As with saving faith, repentance is the immediate response to God's gracious work within the heart of a sinner. So what does the Bible mean by repentance? Sometimes we can throw around theological words, and we're like the, the young child who uses that word that he read in the, in the, in the book, and he, he uses it, but he doesn't really know what it means. We can do that too, can't we, even as grown-ups? We can, we can use theological words like repentance, and we just assume we know what it means. But listen again to our confession. It's very helpful. It's in the very next chapter, in chapter 15. In paragraph 3, we have a very brief but really good definition of what is repentance, biblically speaking. Paragraph 3 reads this, this saving repentance, and, and just, just note when it says saving repentance, it's tying this to the work of faith, believing. See, it's two sides of the same coin. Repentance is necessary for salvation. This saving repentance is an evangelical grace, meaning it's a gift, it's not a work, whereby a person being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin does by faith in Christ humble himself for it with godly sorrow, detestation of it, self-abhorrency, praying for pardon and strength of grace with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things. Now, that's a very condensed and dense couple of sentences. But, but it's very important. This saving repentance, number one, it's a gift of God. It's an evangelical grace. And, and it's the work of the Spirit. When a person being by the Holy Spirit made sensible, Meaning, you come to understand. Again, this is that, that mental aspect of this, right? This is the ascent. Mentally, I see this. I see that my sin is grievous to God. 
I see that this is unlawful, and I see that it's harmful to myself and to those around me, and it dishonors God. So by the Holy Spirit, I'm made sensible of the manifold evils of my sin. And by faith in Christ, the repentant man humbles himself for it with godly sorrow. There's a true sorrow over the sin. Not because of the consequences, not because he got caught, but because he realizes this is displeasing in the sight of my God. There's a detestation, there's a hatred of the sin, and there's a self-abhorrency. Now, our culture just wants to, 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 to vomit at the prospect of, of self-abhorrency. We, we live where the, the, the central tenet of, the, of our cultural religion is self-esteem, not self-abhorrency. And, and this is not to say that, that, that I am of no worth and no value before the sight of God. It is to say that I am a sinner, and, and, I, and I hate what that does to me. I hate what my sin does to those around me, and I hate what my sin does to the God who has redeemed me. There is a self-abhorrency. There is a, then a praying for pardon, for forgiveness, but also for strength of grace in order to walk before the Lord. There's, there's a new purposing. So this is the change. It's I was going on this heading, and, and I see based on the word of God. Remember, Paul says that I would not have known sin if the word of God had not said, thou shalt not covet. But then at that moment, Paul said, I knew I was a sinner. And at that point, Paul began to turn. That's the repentance. It was a change. I was on this heading. I was going this direction in my covetous heart. And I, Paul says, I changed by God's grace and according to his strength. So we need to know not only what repentance is, but from whom is repentance required? Think about that question. From whom is repentance required? Well, the easy answer is from lost people, right? And, and that's, that will be true. In order to come to faith in Christ, you must believe the gospel and repent of sin. But what about the Christian? Is repentance a requirement for you? who've professed Christ, who've been washed, who've been cleansed, who've been pardoned. Is repentance a requirement for you? Yes, it is. Absolutely it is. So when we think about repentance, we must think about it not only in a historical sense, that, when, that back in you know, a year ago or a month ago or 20 years ago, when I came to faith in Christ, I turned from my life of sin and turned to Christ. Praise the Lord for that. Your repentance isn't done. It isn't finished. One day it will be, but this is not that day. Repentance necessarily accompanies saving faith when someone first confesses their sin and believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. But for the Christian, the orientation of the Christian is that he is constantly, she is constantly <laughs> repenting of sin. If you're still there in chapter 15 in our confession, I started in the middle because that's where we have the definition in paragraph three, but let's move back up to paragraph one. We have some kind of quaint antique language that we need to consider about, consider here. Such of the elect that are converted at riper years. Now, don't get offended at that. That's not talking about old people. It's not. It's not talking about me. Based on, on the, the literature of that day, this was, this was, this was a, um, an idiom. It was kind of a colloquial expression, those in riper years, and it ordinarily referred to those who were not infants anymore. There was some controversy historically about whether or not an infant who died, either in the womb or shortly after birth, could be saved. And the Arminians answered in the affirmative because that child didn't have a sin nature. That child became a sinner later on, that whole age of accountability thing that we ought to reject. We believe that from the moment of a conception, a child is truly a sinner, has a sinful nature. And based on that sinful nature is, is worthy, or, or God is justified in condemning them. But we also know that a child in the womb doesn't have a whole lot of opportunity to commit actual sins. Hasn't once back-talked his mother yet. I mean, a few kicks here and there, but that not, not real rebellion yet. 
But there comes a time, and you'll see it very early. If you have children, you see it very early. The sin and rebellion. And so we're talking about those who are converted in riper years need the grace of repentance. The, the child born in the womb or lost in the womb doesn't need repentance. needs regeneration. In our confession, that's beyond the scope of today, but our confession does cover that. We believe that God regenerates, breathes new life. Ordinarily, it's by the ministry of the Word and believing the gospel, what we've just talked about, assenting to those things. Well, a, a, a baby can't do that, but that doesn't mean they can't be saved. So the confession begins with somewhat awkward language, but such of the elect that are converted at riper years. So that's all of us. If you can understand my words, you're riper years. Even if you're four and you can understand part of my words, you are riper years. And I just made up that age. I'm not, don't hang anything on that. I could have said two or three or... Pastor David says four and up. No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Such of the elect that are converted at riper years, having sometime lived in the state of nature, and therein served diverse lusts and pleasures, God in their effectual calling giveth them repentance unto life. So what do we conclude? Ordinarily, this is the case. Unless we're talking about a child lost in infancy, this is the case. Someone who comes to faith in Christ will also need the grace of repentance to turn from, even if it's only a short duration of time that they have had a pattern of sin. Praise God for that even if they've had godly parents who externally constrain them from committing certain sins. They still need the grace of repentance, don't they? So even our young children, parents, the takeaway is to recognize that even your young children need the grace of repentance. So they need to be trained as part of your teaching, training them to forsake themselves, to labor against their own flesh. Repentance must not only be historical, repentance must be ongoing. The riper years is all of us, along with faith that perseveres. God's grace also produces repentance that endures. The true child of God who is redeemed by the blood of Christ and transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's own Son will have a life that is marked by, marked by ongoing repentance. I mean, this should just characterize the Christian. I mean, it's the old adage, you cut me, I bleed. What color do I bleed? Well, it's red. You cut us, we ought to bleed repentance because Christ has died for us and we are constantly being conformed to his image. Notice paragraph two, here in this same chapter, chapter 15, paragraph two. Whereas there is none that doth good and sinneth not. Well, that's just basic Bible doctrine, isn't it? There's none that doeth good, not even one. And the best of men, you can paraphrase that, the most sanctified man on earth through the power and deceitfulness of their corruption dwelling in them with the prevalency of temptation, that same man may fall into great sins and provocations. Now, even if you're willing to give, to give yourself that rank among Christians, say, I'm, I'm of the best of men. I'll own that title. If, that, that, that's, if you're willing to do that, I won't judge you this morning. If you're willing to do that, just roll for the sake of argument, even if that's the case. Because the prevalency of temptation and the, and the nature of corruption that remains in you, you may still fall into great sins and provocations. And that God has, in the covenant of grace, mercifully provided for you that a believer so sinning and falling may be renewed through repentance unto salvation. Even the best Christian, even the most sanctified Christian, even the most holy person you have ever known is still prone to sin. Amen? And upon that sin still needs the grace of repentance. So who's going to argue that, I, that they don't need that anymore? They've moved beyond that. Hopefully no one. Repentance is required not only historically, but it's necessary for the best of Christians through the course of our whole lives. Those truly bought by the blood of Jesus will hear his voice. Even when they've gone astray, they will hear the voice of their Savior and return. So how do we know from the Scriptures then that this ongoing repentance is necessary for church membership? 
because we know from the scriptures that ongoing repentance is necessary for every single child of God. That's how we know. What fundamentally marks us as a child of God? You think about what, what should characterize a Christian? And we could think of a number of attributes, but fundamentally, Jesus said this, my sheep know me and they hear my voice. If you love me, you obey my commandments, he says. My sheep hear my voice. See, if you turn over to Matthew, uh, Matthew 18, this is the point I think that Christ is making here. This is the kind of a classic passage on church discipline within a local assembly. And we have this scenario. Jesus begins in verse 15. He says, if your brother sins against you, you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Notice how Jesus in this passage repeats the word hear or listen. Because again, what marks us as Christians, we hear the voice of our Savior and we follow him. He says, here's the scenario, brother has sinned against you. You go to him privately. You admonish your brother. You appeal to your brother. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he does not listen, because what should a Christian do? They listen to the word of God. If he does not do that, then what do you do? You take two or more witnesses with you, because that's what's required of the law to establish a matter. You take two or more witnesses that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, the pronouns have shifted from you to they, he will not listen now to the multitude of witnesses. Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen or hear even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What marks the people of God is they hear. When our children were much younger, we've got a, a long driveway, and they would like to ride their bikes and skateboards and roller skates and the whole thing. And there was, you know, those expansion joints in the concrete create some nice little lines. And there was a line about 15 or 20 feet from the road, and we instructed our children, that's the line. Thou shalt not cross that line. Now, the children, they did, sometimes inadvertently because they got more air on the ramp than they thought, and the landing strip wasn't really planned out well in advance. That happens. But what do we do? We would call them. Son, return. Come back across the line. See, that's what, that's what Matthew 18 is about. One of us has crossed the line. We, we've gone into a, to, to, to a pattern of sin. A brother has come and said, hey. And sometimes even the children would do that amongst themselves. Hey, Mom told you don't cross that line. Oh, oh yeah, I forgot. I was, okay, thanks. They heard their brother, or they heard their sister, and they returned. But mom or dad could simply call them and say, sweetie, you've crossed the line, and they would return. That's what a child ought to do. They ought to hear their parents' voice and return. And incidentally, as, as a side note, parents, if, if this is not true, in your parenting, something, there's a problem. If your children will not hear your voice and return, if your children will not hear your voice and obey, there's a problem, not with the child, with your parenting is where the problem is. See, one of two of you is being trained. The child's being trained or you're being trained. Right? If you call your children and they ignore you, or they act as if they didn't hear you, or they act as if they're too busy to follow your instructions, or if they continue to go their own way, you have a problem, not them. As a parent, you must insist on this. And there are eternal and spiritual implications because you are training them not only to, to come back on the driveway to the right place. You're, the training that we give to our children is far more significant than stay out of the road. We are conditioning them to listen to an authoritative voice outside of themselves and obey that. If they haven't been trained and conditioned in that way, what will they do when God calls them to obey? Have you trained them as a parent not to obey until the 5th or 6th or 20th time? Please stop, please stop, please stop, please stop, and there's no consequence. Or do you train them? Mommy said, stop. Mommy said, be quiet. Daddy said, come here. And you expect first time obedience. Then you are training their soul 
to respond to the commands of Christ. You're you're training their souls to to respond to a command outside of themselves. And, And before you know it, and sooner than you realize it, they are already in the riper years. You will already see them plotting and scheming and planning, and you will see their willful disobedience. They are already in the riper years at that point. And they need mommy and daddy to help them learn to obey. That's a side note. But it helps illustrate the point, right? Because John said in his letter, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. And John reasons this way. He says, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Well, let's spin this just a little bit. And I don't think I'm going out of bounds by saying this. If your children will not obey a parent who they have seen, how will they obey a God whom they have not seen? Right? Jesus said this issue is so important that it might indicate that a man or a woman does not actually belong to him after all. Here's the scenario. Someone has sinned. Someone has crossed the line. And a brother or sister goes to them privately and says, if you've sinned, not that you've, you've violated my personal preference or my personal pet fee, but Jesus says, if your brother has sinned against you, meaning he has violated the word of God, he has committed some transgression, or he has, been, he has been negligent in some duty. He's not violated my preference. He has sinned. And I go to him and said, the word of God says this is where the line is, and you, brother, are on the other side of that line. Or, sister, the, the word of God says the line is here, and you have fallen short of that line. And they won't hear you. They won't listen. They're like the kid that says, la, 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 I don't hear you. So you take two or more with you, and you go and plead with that sister. You plead with that brother. Please come back. Please hear the voice of our Father. Don't listen to us. Hear the voice of the Word of God and come back. No, I'm going to play in the street. I like it out here. Then the whole church goes and says, Brother, please, for the sake of your soul, will you come back? No, I won't hear. I won't listen. Jesus is saying at that point, their failure to listen, their failure to hear, their failure to respond to the admonitions of God's people, bringing to them the word of God, they're they revealing what? They're not, they're not part of the kingdom. See, this is the necessity of ongoing repentance as a requirement for church membership. And we can reason from, from, the, from the negative case. Jesus says, if they don't do this, what ought to happen? They ought to be to you a sinner and a tax collector. He doesn't say despise them. He doesn't say spit upon them when they walk by. He doesn't, see, he doesn't say pray for curses upon their head. He said a sinner means this is what the Jews called those who were outside the covenant, the Gentiles. They had no covenant relationship with God. They were sinners. A tax collector was viewed as one who knew the covenant and had betrayed it, who betrayed their own kinsmen, their own countrymen, who sided with the enemy, Rome. Jesus, let them be a sinner and a tax collector to you. Consider them outside the camp, outside the covenant, because they will not hear. They will not repent. The the grace of ongoing repentance is a necessary qualification to be a Christian. Therefore, it's a necessary qualification to be a church member. Are you following? Does that make sense? But for those who obey the command to repent, we have from the scriptures the promise of the Lord's exceeding grace. And this ought to be mirrored and reflected in our parenting. When we call the child and they come, we ought to to celebrate that. We ought to praise them for their obedience. We We ought to commend that. Our Lord commends ours. The truly penitent heart will never find himself turned away from God's grace. The true Christian will never find himself too far away. He will never cross the driveway line so far that he can't be called back. There, no sinner will find herself so, so far away from her Savior that genuine repentance will not grant her an escape from eternal life or eternal punishment. The truly penitent man will never find himself so far away from God's grace that he cannot be called back. Our last reference to our confession Still in the same chapter, but I want to look at the last two paragraphs. 
And again, I commend this to you, and even in your devotional reading and the scriptures that go with this. May, may our confession be an inspiration to you and a guide to you to take you back into the Word of God. That's where the real spring of life is. Paragraph 4 summarizes the doctrine of the Scriptures this way, as repentance is to be continued through the whole course of our lives upon the account of the body of death and the motions thereof, meaning we have a sinful nature and, we, and that sinful nature produces sinful actions, right? So it is every man's duty to repent of his particular known sins particularly. We have a duty to be specific. Not just in our prayers to God to so just forgive our sins generally, that's, that's valid, but as we know those particular sins, we ought to repent of those particular sins particularly. Then paragraph 5 says, Such is the provision which God hath made through Christ in the covenant of grace for the preservation of believers unto salvation, that although there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, yet there is no sin so great that it shall bring damna- damnation on them that repent, which makes the constant preaching of repentance necessary. Amen. We, we, we need this. Each and every one of us needs this. We need to be reminded of it. We need to be reminded again and then reminded again because we will forget, won't we? When, when, we've, when we've given ourselves over to despair from our own sinful actions, we are tempted at that point to unbelief, aren't we? We're tempted to think, because we'll believe the enemy who's whispering in our ear saying, you've gone too far this time. God forgave you a hundred times before, but not this time. You've gone too far. No matter how many times you've crossed over the line on the driveway, your Father will call you home if you will hear Him. That's the grace of repentance. That's the fruit of true saving faith. When we think of church membership, let us think biblically. Let, Let us think biblically. God has required that His people come to Him through faith in His Son and all those who call upon the God, the God our, our Father in heaven, through Jesus Christ, will not only believe his gospel, but they will endeavor to persevere in obedience to it. They will also keep turning away from sin in repentance towards God. I want to extend the, the, the call the command from the scriptures to those here today who have who've not believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, who have some sort of ambiguous, undefined sense of faith in faith or faith in some concept of God, but not the God of the scriptures. I urge you today to believe what the scriptures say about God the Father as revealed to us through God the Son, and by the power of His Spirit, believe the gospel that He proclaims to you today. It is not the words of a man that you're hearing. It's the word of Christ Himself. He's offered Himself to sinners. Will you you take hold of that? Will you believe that gospel? Will you turn from your sin? Will, Will you agree with God that by nature you are a sinner and that as a, because of that nature, you do sinful things, you think sinful thoughts, you say sinful things. And that you need the grace of both faith and repentance. May the Lord give us understanding, and may the Lord give us hearts who grow in faith. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful that you have made yourself known to us. Our Lord Jesus said, if we've seen him, we've seen the Father also. And Lord, we have not yet seen him with our eyes. That promise yet remains for us that we will one day behold him face to face. But today we see him by faith as he is revealed to us in the scriptures. And I pray, Lord, that you will give us the grace to believe him. That you will give us grace to obey the means that he has given. Hearing his word preached to us and and, and offering up our prayers to him with thanksgiving and our our requests made known that, that you will increase our faith and also that as we eat and drink the supper together, that you will, will use this appointed means, not to justify us before you, but to cause our, our assurance to grow, to cause the measure of our faith to increase, that we can grow in confidence 
in the promises of our Savior that we can enjoy our fellowship with Him spiritually and with one another as we feast upon His promises. We ask all of this in His holy and precious name. Amen.